Hello and welcome to the Future Farm Podcast. On this special feature series, we invite farmers to talk about agriculture topics that matter. My name is Florian Ritzman, and on today's show, our three guests are talking about regenerative farming and carbon sequestration. We will be using the terms almost synonymously, so a bit of scene setting ahead is in order. Regenerative farming is the recognition that modern intensive agricultural practices exhaust the soil. A measure of that exhaustion is the decline of organic matter in the soil, which is carbon. Less organic matter means less biological activity, amongst other things, and over time soil is less able to nurture and protect the plants growing on it. We make up for that decline with chemical fertilizers and pesticides, but a regenerative farmer would tell you that by treating the symptom in this way, which is the decline in gross yield, we're not treating the underlying disease. Over time, the quality of our soils will keep getting worse, perhaps irretrievably so. Chris Hollingsworth is a regenerative farmer from the east of England, and he will talk to us about his experience. Now, regenerative farming has a huge additional benefit, which is that by increasing the amount of carbon being held in the soil, we reduce the amount of that same greenhouse gas in the air, and potentially make a huge contribution in the fight against global warming. Simon Holdrup is the CEO of Agrina, which helps farmers quantify the amount of carbon they can sequester and issues them with certificates they can sell for money. That is a powerful market-based incentive designed to accelerate the take-up of regenerative farming practices. And Simon will tell us how it works. Now, this all sounds like a slam dunk, a win-win, right? Too good to be true, maybe? Ali Kapper is a hops and apple farmer and on the board of the NFU and tells us about remaining adoption barriers, particularly outside the arable and grasslands world and within government. Because we have to face it, regenerative farming was not on the agenda of the recent COP26 conference, and that means much more needs to be done for the world at large to take a closer look and for carbon sequestration through regenerative farming to enter the mainstream. Right, so let's jump straight into it. I'd like to lead with Chris. Um, Chris, you've converted your land to regenerative farming and are therefore sort of first in line when it comes to reaping the benefits of carbon sequestration. But before we go into um, you know, what that was like for you, what actually prompted you to make that switch? We started, my grandfather started farming here in the late 20s, early 30s. And he started growing a lot of fruit on the farm, uh, apples, pears, and soft fruits, and planted a lot of orchards in the 30s and the 40s, which were grubbed up in the late 70s, early 80s, when fruit growing became far less profitable. So quite a part of our land was farmed uh, in an arable rotation, and part of the farm was in fruit. And it, the orchards were in there for about 40 years. After they were grubbed up, grubbed out, during the 90s and, the, and later, combines developed systems of having yield, yield monitoring systems on them where you could monitor the yield across the field. And it became quite clear to, to me when I looked at the, the yield maps of the fields that the yields were better on all the areas of the fields that had been in orchards. And the, the correlation, once we looked at the soils and had the soils analyzed, was that there was a higher level of organic matter in the 
orchard soil, in the ex-orchard soils, which reflects the degenerative effect of arable farming, the continual cultivations that had gone in every year had effectively reduced the amount of organic matter in that soil. This led me on the path towards trying to regenerate the, so the soils, improve the soils, and brought, brought us into the idea of regenerative farming. Okay, so we don't actually at this stage need to describe exactly what regenerative farming is, but the idea is re to regenerate, is to improve the soils, to improve the health of the soils. And we do this by a number of ways. We do it by growing cover crops, so there's always vegetation growing on the fields. We do it by um, reducing or having no cultivations at all, minimum, the, reducing the amount of cultivations that we, that we have. Why did we go into it originally? One, one of the reasons that drove us was to reduce our costs of production. One of the benefits of, of stopping cultivating the fields is that you, you, the, you need less labor, you need less machinery, so you've got less depreciation, you've got less repairs, and you've got less fuel. So let me just stop you there for just a second, because if I drive through the countryside at this time of year, the first thing that I'll notice looking at it is that you said cover crops, but at this time of year, what I see is a lot of tilled soil um, that um, is exposed to, to the weather and just waiting for the next growing season from the looks of it. Just for the layman here, the non-farmers who are listening to this, why do farmers till their land today? Why do they do this? What's because the they believe that they need to do that in order to get the best yields in the springtime. Right. And that, that if they don't cultivate and loosen up all the soil, um, then they will have poorer yields as a consequence. Okay. And you've adopted regenerative farming, and you've, as you've just alluded to, um, it's basically led for you, you, you're looking at farming differently since then. But before we get into that, how many years ago did you make the switch? We made the switch about five years ago. And when you made that switch, the whole carbon agenda was probably not first and foremost on your mind at all, was it? No, it wasn't. No, we, we, we did it because we wanted to improve the health of the soil. We could see that if we increase the organic matter of the soil, if the soil, the soil would become more active um, and there would be lots and lots of benefits, including benefits to the plant health and to the, uh, we would reduce the amount of fertilizer, both uh, nitrogen fertilizer and the main phosphate and potash fertilizers that we put on the soil. We could reduce those. The, the plants can start to build a symbiotic relationship with the biology, the fungi and the bacteria in the soil mm -hmm. and can start to get some of their nutrients that way. But also the symbiotic relationship gives the plants uh, better health as well. So we could see that we could reduce a lot of our, our inputs, fertilizer and uh, fungicide and insecticide inputs as well. So you, you didn't come at this from an ideological angle. You discovered that there was something going on in the soil. You 
experimented, you investigated, and five years later, as a businessman with your with your numbers hat on, um, what has how have you changed your approach to looking at things like profitability uh, and yield? I think a lot of farmers look on. Uh, they only really look at the gross output. They they look at what they what the yields are. What we were looking at was to look at what our margins were over our net costs, and we included margin. So we looked at the usual margins, which are the seed, fertilizers, and sprays, but we also included the uh, labor and machinery costs as well. We've not done that alone. We've done that. There's a group of regenerative farmers in our area which we've combined together, and we uh, give up. We have a uh, a guy called Gary Markham from an, a firm of accountants called Land Family Business, and they benchmark our farms and cost them against conventional farms, so we can watch and see how we're doing compared to conventional farming practices which would include plowing and cultivating the land. And the point that we're most interested in is our margin after our costs, not the, not the gross output. There are, you know, there are some, you know, we find some of our spring crops don't yield as well as conventional farmers, but if you take the whole picture and look at the reduction in costs, then we think we are actually better off, not worse off. I think it's time to point the mic in the direction of Ali for a moment. It sounds to me um, from the own research that I've done and what Chris has just told me that regenerative farming and the subsequent benefit of carbon sequestration, meaning the ability for the soil to regenerate uh, organic matter in the soil, makes business sense. This is what Chris has told us. Uh, unless Chris tells us otherwise, I don't think he'll go back to conventional farming. Now we are at sort of at ourselves as a country, we're um, at a crossroads. There's a new farming bill coming. COP26 is just behind us. And the question I have to you, because you've got your ear to the ground in these matters, is is regenerative farming and the related topic of carbon sequestration, is that on the agenda for the government when it comes to writing up the new farming bill? Um, thanks, Florian. I think it is starting to get on the agenda. And I think it's clear that the new sustainable farming incentive and future iterations of it will start to think about carbon sequestration in more detail. But I think that the government, uh, there's an awful lot of work to do here. As usual, I think if there is a value to the carbon that we sequester, um, this government will want the market to work that out. Hear that a lot from this government, that it's a market issue. Um, it's difficult for carbon um, to really create a market until there is clarity on whether there will be, this is quite technical, but whether there will be carbon border adjustments or not. And we don't have clear policy from government on that. They've started to discuss it, but there's no clear policy. And I, I guess I would say uh, there's also a balance here between do we want to be a nation that produces food, not just for our own society, but to export around the world? And do we want to be able to compete with other food producing nations? Or do we want to move to becoming a nation where we give over our land to biodiversity and carbon sequestration. And I think those are the challenges that government are trying to work out at the moment, because sometimes the two are in conflict with each other. You can grow food in a regenerative 
farming system very successfully. I think there is a question mark about whether you can do that and compete with other parts of the world as successfully. You know, Chris quite rightly is saying, well, it's going to cost less money. I do, I, basically, for me, regenerative farming is do things a bit more slowly. Um, you push the land less hard. That does mean reduced yields. And Chris would say, well, that's reduced cost as well. There's reduced cost of inputs. Um, I think the jury is out about whether there's going to be enough value back from the combination of that food production and whether it's a biodiversity payment or a carbon sequestration payment to make us able to compete with food producers in the rest of the world for whom carbon sequestration, biodiversity is not even on the agenda yet or a lot lower down their agenda. I hope that makes sense. It does. Um... Uh, just uh, you said border adjustments. I just wanted to clar clarify that what you're pr presumably preferring to is the relative value of carbon certificates, depending on whether they're generated, let's say here or halfway around the world. Uh, is, is that the point you were trying to make? It is. And there's also a piece of work around um, whether the carbon you're measuring is, is the carbon that you're producing. Um, or whether it's the carbon that you're consuming. And again, in global terms, that is all rather um, undefined, ill-defined at the moment. But it's very difficult to run a, a, a proper carbon tax, carbon credit regime without working out what your carbon border adjustment piece is going to be, because uh, otherwise, well, it's very difficult to put a price on things if you haven't got those carbon border adjustments in place. Well, um, we'll, we'll get to Simon in a minute, and I'm sure he tell, can tell us a bit more about the value of these certificates. But before we do, just a few more questions for you. Uh, so let's say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a farmer and I'm interested and I've done my initial research into regenerative farming and carbon sequestration. Where do you see barriers really in terms of policy and in terms of um, the general environment for a farmer to, to make that switch or invest in, in, in measures that, that would result in carbon sequestration? And what could the government do to, if it wanted to, to improve that today, the take up? Um, so I think for me, I think the biggest barrier is measurement, actually. Firstly, uh, there are a lot of the data in this space is global data. It doesn't always apply well back to the UK. And I think the measurement of methane for livestock farmers is a good example of that. Um, there's a big debate about whether that should be measured using the GP measure or the GWP star measure. Again, sorry, I'm getting technical, but that's quite an important issue. Um, for me, as a farmer of perennial plants, Actually, the carbon tools that are in the marketplace um, mostly don't help me because they won't measure accurately the carbon that I'm sequestering and or emitting because they're really designed around um, broad acre or livestock systems. They're not measured for um, my type of business. And then even when they are designed for broad acre or livestock systems, the underlying data in those tools is quite different from tool to tool. So you can use three tools and get three different answers to how much carbon am I measuring or sequestering. So um, what does it feel like? I think to a lot of farmers, this space at the moment feels like the Wild West. Also, there are assurance schemes for the carbon tools. Many of the carbon tools in the marketplace haven't actually been formally accredited yet either. So um, I think at the last count, there were 70 plus carbon measurement tools that a farmer could choose to use. So, you know, how do you choose? That's what I mean by the Wild West. It feels like this is, it's very new, it's very emerging. And as with any new 
uh, let's call it technology, because a lot of this is technology-based. Um, it takes a while for things to settle and for systems to become adopted, proven and adopted, proven and evaluated, proven and checked. And, and there's a lot um, that's lacking at the moment. So, so I think the biggest barrier is how do I measure? What do I measure? And also, what's the context? Am I looking at a global context or a national context? Some of the other barriers are, is this really complicated? It's really, really complicated. And I think that we have um, policy makers who um, lack e expertise in this space. So I think it's going to take time for the policy to develop. And that's a barrier for farmers, because if there isn't clear policy, if we don't know which way the policy is going to go, will there be carbon border adjustments or not? Will there be a carbon tax or not? It makes it quite difficult for farmers to make decisions about long-term strategies for their business. So what should farmers do? Is that going to be your next question, Florian? <laughs> um, <laughs> Please go ahead. Tell us what should farmers do? What should farmers do? Um, read as much as you can about this space. Um, but I think it, there, are, there are some very clear policy drivers coming from UK government about the fact that we need to do better by our soil because soil and grassland are excellent ways of sequestering carbon. So are there simple things that we could all do to improve the quality of our soils? And then it's, I think, the question of, and will I get paid for that? To be honest, for me, I think it's a bit further down the line. I'd like to think that farmers will. And how should government do that? Um, well, I think government should do that through incentivizing farmers to do it. For me, the process of income foregone, stop doing this and start doing this instead for a payment. It works if you're if you're working across thousands of acres of broad acre. Um, it doesn't work very well for my sector, for fruit and veg plants and flowers, because we're not going to stop producing high value fruit and veg. And surely we haven't got a government that wants us to stop producing high value fruit and veg. But what the government should be saying to my sector and I think others actually is let's put some incentives in place so that the food production that you are doing is being done alongside best practice for biodiversity or best practice for carbon sequestration and of course best practice is going to evolve and change I hope that makes some semblance of sense absolutely and I'll, I'll try and summarize before um, uh, we'll, we'll go to to Simon so it's essentially um, the barriers are a lack of standardization it's complicated, so we we're, we need ed education, uh, and uh, there's a lack of expertise in government, which we need to grow. So summarizing that as the Wild West, as hopefully there's a new sheriff in town, um, and his name is Simon Halder, and uh, he can perhaps explain to us, particularly the commercial aspect of turning uh, sequestered carbon into cold hard cash. Your company specializes in helping farmers make that transition essentially to regenerative farming with the, the byproduct being or the, the end result being certificates that can be traded. So I've got a lot of questions around that. The first one is um, what does it actually take uh, for a farmer to enroll in an Agrina program? Thanks. Uh, I don't know if a new sheriff, but at, at least we're we're working the market to try to overcome some of those barriers that are being discussed here. And just to take a step back, we're we're currently working with farmers in in eight different countries, and I just have to say it: the challenges are exactly the same in in each uh, geography. The the way we've come into this is actually. Uh, 
working a, a trade marketplace. And, and what we can generally see is that farmers, there's zero financial incentive for farmers uh, to adopt these practices. And very few do like Chris and actually do the run the numbers because they're, they're working very short term. Uh, and therefore our belief is that by actually creating a carbon asset, by actually creating a financial incentive, we can overcome those two first uh, two, three years that for many actually means a, a lower a uh, lower gross yield, as uh, as Chris also alluded to, to get to the other side and, and reap the the benefits of a of a transition. But what does it mean to a farmer? We have built a a technology platform to make this uh, remove the friction because, uh, as Ali also alluded to, there's a it's a wild west. There's a there's a lot of uh, different carbon tools and calculators out there. But the fact of the matter is that even applying a carbon tool uh, is only half the way because in actually in order to actually receive some kind of payments. And personally, I believe that will be the same disregarding whether it's from a voluntary market or it's from a government requires a verified carbon asset to be in place. And that is fundamentally uh, what we've built. So we've integrated the process of uh, data capture. This is complex, as it was also suggested here. Uh, so we capture uh, the data from a farmer. Uh, so if I use uh, Chris as an example here, uh, the farmer can uh, sign up on a digital platform, find his farm and start to identify his fields, deliver a lot of data on historic practices uh, that allows us to establish a baseline basically the starting point, and then start actually building a strategy, building a strategy about how to convert over both a one, two, three-year transition period, going from conventional tillage into minimum tillage, and maybe even to no tillage at some point, starting to adopt cover crops, uh, starting to reduce the inputs, uh, lower fuel consumption. And what the technology fundamentally does is to translate those changes of practices into a, an adjusted GSG profile of that land. But that's, as I said before, that's only the first part of the equation. The second part of the equation is the entire verification and, um, and carbon issuance process. Because asking whether people have started using cover crops or not is, uh, is not necessarily enough for the market. And therefore, we run a, an integrated verification process using satellite imagery, a lot of advanced analytics running this kind of programs a lot of across a lot of different farmers we see pattern analysis that allows us to use technology to verify these processes at scale and then combining that with both infield inspections uh, and independent third-party verification to ensure the validity and integrity of the carbon sequestration that has happened and then there's a third step of actually issuing a carbon credit and having in say public uh, open ledgers that allows for reconciliation these claims but and we're issuing that to the farmer so in short what it means is that the farmer can say uh, can, it's a little bit of a hazard to get started uh, because you need to deliver a lot of data uh, in order to have a strong baseline and then every year, uh, it's a little bit like taxes. So a prediction of what is my strategy for this year uh, and after harvest, delivering data on what actually happened on each of my fields that allows us to compute the carbon sequestration that has happened and verify it and ultimately issue the carbon credit that can be sold in the market. So from the sound of it, the first step is quite easy. I go to your website and I register as a farmer and that's free. Um, but to get to that third step, which you know clearly is uh, the financial incentive that you mentioned at the outset, yeah. um, how many years are we talking about before I could uh, 
uh, reap the rewards of what I've done. Yeah, so typically it's a it's a year delay. So we're only issuing the carbon at we're following the harvest year. So there's a harvest cycle, uh, harvest year cycle into this. Uh, and and maybe just to clarify on Alice's point, I completely agree that different coverages of this week only cover uh, arable uh, rotation at this point in time. And therefore it follows that harvest year cycle. So if I sign right now, farmers are planning their 22 uh, harvest cycle and building in their strategies those certificates will be issued end of the 22 after verification. We expect within the next two weeks to be able to, we're just right now finalizing the third party verification on the 21 vintage. So we'll be issuing the first carbon credits uh, fully verified in a few weeks time. Uh, so generally that means that the farmer will have a payment um, uh, you know, 12 months from, from registering. Okay, so a year, that's, that's doable, uh, sounds good. Now on the um, certificates themselves, um, I've, I've got a, a bit of a background trading on the EU ETS. And a few years ago, last time I looked at this, what happened on the EU ETS, which is the EU's uh, carbon trading market, the thing that happened is that the market crashed and uh, the value of these certificates just went from 10 pounds to 50 cents. Uh, and so I'm wondering, you know, as a farmer, if you're issuing certificates at the end of this year, how, what kind of assurance can you give a farmer that they'll be, you know, they'll be worth what you say they're worth? How, where, where do they actually get their value from? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think there are two, two things to make clear. Uh, there's a distinct difference here between the allowance trading market of the EU ETS and then the voluntary carbon market. So these these credits are eligible within the voluntary carbon market. So these are these credits are bought by companies offsetting their uh, unavoidable or uh, transitional emissions. We do screening of all buyers to ensure, and that's a market integrity uh, approach, is to ensure that carbon credits are not used as an alternative to decarbonize own supply chain. But therefore, these are companies that can be from in the food supply chain using these credits as insets to produce carbon neutral food products, uh, or it can be outside the food supply chain to create carbon offsets for corporate carbon accounting purposes. Uh, but it's all within the voluntary carbon market. I understand. And so, worst case scenario, Chris, there's a flood um, and uh, one year, and uh, all the carbon that has been sequestered on Chris's land, let's, let's just hope that never happens, uh, gets washed away. What happens then to the value of these certificates and what type of insurance is built in uh, into the, these schemes to, I guess you can never avoid it, but to at least mitigate no. it? No, and I think, I think you're alluding to an even bigger challenge that has to be overcome if we're looking at the entire category of uh, farmland soil carbon credits, which is uh, permanence. Because, you know, even before the point of flooding or fires, uh, then, then what can happen is that farmers start tilling again. And even though we concluded earlier that Chris will never go back, then there's a risk of reversals uh, if farmer starts uh, cultivating their soils and therefore releasing some of the carbon that has been sequestered uh, in the soil. Therefore, therefore, it's it's critical to have some checks and balances in that. Uh, and what we do is that we retain a proportion of the issued certificates in a non-permanence pool, which is in 
covering both the unintentional carbon reversals, that might be a, a flooding situation. So it doesn't impact the carbon credits that has been, uh, it's an insurance buffer, if you will, on top that captures that. But it also captures in the case that some farmers in the program starts going back and actually starts tilling the soil, we'll, we'll be able to see that in our monitoring. And then we'll cancel those credits that has been issued from that farmer because they are ultimately invalid and to a potential buyer replenish with another credit from the buff. And that is uh, quite instrumental in actually creating value in the carbon market because without these kind of safeguards, there's fundamentally very low value in those credits. Thank you. Um, I suppose just stepping back to the individual farmer, one question that I have in my mind is knowing a little bit about farmers um, is that a lot of them well, live hand to mouth. Uh, and in terms of putting a crop in the soil, you often end up borrowing money from the same people that you end up selling your harvest to. As a barrier, as an additional barrier, um, say I wanted to adopt regenerative carbon sequestration practices. How much, uh, this is for Ali, um, how much use of a barrier that that is? If, if you wanted to, to um, if, say you needed finance in order to, to grow your crop and you then, uh, had to produce a plan that said, well, I'm actually adopting regenerative farming. Is that a barrier? Are, are farmers to some extent locked into their current financing, uh, into their current financing requirements? And does that, would that stop them from changing the way they grow things? Um, I think whether you're borrowing your money from your supply chain or whether you're borrowing your money from the bank, um, whoever you're borrowing that money from will want to know that you've got a sensible business plan and I think the comments that we've both made about the wild west and the, the slightly unknown values for um, again coming back to whether it's a, a carbon credit or um, a biodiversity measure or indeed whether there will be a carbon tax on farmers means that this is quite a difficult space at the moment to put an, a, a really robust business plan in place for because there are so many unknowns so I think the answer is for me, if I was going to my bank at the moment and saying, well, actually, I'm going to produce a bit less, uh, but I'm going to put all these measures in place, which are much better for the environment and will mean that I sequester soil. At the moment, I can't put a value on what the government will pay me for those biodiversity measures or indeed what the market might pay me for the carbon. And actually, in my world of fruit and vegetables, where we're in an integrated supply chain, and um, it may well be that the retailer wants to take my scope three emissions for themselves, and that might not leave me with a value. They may be telling me that that's going to improve my price, but I don't. All of those are unknowns at the moment, Florian. So I think it makes it very difficult to put a robust business plan in place today. In three years' time, we may all be in a different place. So I guess that uh, kind of like to conclude, I should actually ha hand over to our farmers who's done it. And the question is, uh, Chris, do, do you? Um, Agree, disagree with with Ali's view that you know regenerative farming is about pushing the soil a little less hard, but getting more out of it in the long term. So therefore, you know it might not be for everyone. There is a risk involved. I mean, you you have your own experience and probably those of some of your peers to fall back on. How diff well how difficult was the switch, and how much of a financial burden was it on you? Well, yeah, I mean. I I can understand Ali's concerns um, about it all. And, you know, I can appreciate concerns that farmers have. I mean, you know, to go down the regenerative farming route is 
you know, it, it, it is such a change in the way you do things. I mean, the comments that I could make is that when we did it, actually our cash flow was much better um, because we weren't putting so many inputs in during the year prior to the harvest. So for instance, we don't put a seed dressing on we use far less insecticides, we use less fungicides, we've reduced the amount of nitrogen we're putting on, and still achieving comparable yields with our neighbours in a conventional system. So actually, the cash flow works in your favour. I think the other thing which we must appreciate, is, well, two or three things. Firstly, you know, in the UK, we use it, we're, we're, we're losing the BPS, the basic payment scheme. And as we lose that, we've got more lines of income coming in. We've got a line of income from Harvest 21 through a greener, um, which uh, we're sequestering for, uh, we've worked out we're about 4.4 tons a hectare of carbon. And so that's giving us a, a, a quite a significant income. We're, we also get incomes through the countryside stewardship scheme because um, if you put a cover crop in the ground and leave it in the ground until February time, then you receive an extra £115 a hectare. If we look at elms and we look at um, the sustainable farming incentives that are coming through now, they're all there. There are there are going to be further grants. There's going to be further subsidies paid to farmers who will farm in a regenerative way. So we are at a crossroads here. I appreciate the difficulties that some farmers face with their cash flows and everything else. And also, you can't. You, you also have to mention the fact that a lot of farmers are very traditional. And traditional farmers love to see brown fields with lovely green stripes running up and down it of the seed coming, uh, germinating, coming out of the ground. They don't get, you don't get that with regenerative farming. Um, the farms do look quite different. I think the other point that Ali made is that I'd look at regenerative farming from basically an arable combinable crop point of view. I do get involved with vegetable farms as well and the, and, and, under a vegetable farm system, regenerative farming, in my view, is, I mean, Simon may say differently, but it's almost impossible. And I'm sure Simon will very soon be getting a, um, the computer to work out how much carbon Ali and her fruit growers are sequestering in a perennial planting system. So I think we really need to look very positively at all of this. Um, and I think the you know, we're not, not only are we uh, solving some of the issues of soil erosion, uh, we're solving issues of leaching of nutrients into the water supply, but also we're, we're, we're key in being able to sequester carbon and, and all the benefits that that brings in terms of climate change. So a good positive um, approach from the Ali and her friends at the NFU to push the government into um, doing, uh, to, to having a very close look at uh, regenerative farming would be my wish. Well, uh, that's a Christmas list and a half. Uh, so Ali, you got your work cut out. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to um, say thank you very much 
for all of you for joining. I think it's been a very rich session. Uh, certainly, I'll enjoy listening to all this again and again um, because I think I learned a lot here. Uh, shades of gray everywhere we look, but I think the overwhelming picture seems to be that this makes sense and that um, in terms of looking at this as an, as an arable farmer, it should become unavoidable in the years to come. So once again, thank you very much for joining. It was lovely to have you all on board. So here's what I took away from our conversation. For Chris, the move into regenerative farming was a result of observation, not ideology. Some of his land was more productive, so he made a business decision to convert the rest of it. His margins and cash flow have improved, and this is all before taking into account any revenue from carbon credits. Ali pointed to the lack of standards and rules. She calls it the Wild West, as a main barrier for adoption. To overcome that, the government would have to provide a much more activist steer and become a better champion of food produced in Britain. But thanks to Simon's contribution, we also know that there are very serious players out there that can help farmers make sense of regenerative farming help them de-risk changing their farming practices. Just pay a visit to agrina.com and have a look at their evolved calculator today. Chris is also now enrolled with Agrina and he will receive his first certificates in 2022. So I'm really struggling to find what's not to like about regenerative farming. Taking carbon out of the air is something that science tells us we must do. So why not put the carbon where we can do good things with it, like our soil? It feels like a no-brainer to me. Please join us again in the new year when we'll be tackling the particularly thorny topic of competition or perhaps the lack thereof in agricultural inputs buying. Until then, have a happy new year. See you in January.